Hey there, church fam. What's happening? Good almost afternoon. The quote of the week this week, I think, it might have been last week, but it counts for this week. It was that good. I was talking to somebody about which service they go to, and they said, the first one, that's single digits, and I don't do that, so I have empathy for you there. Well, welcome. We'll be um, working through the last part of Ephesians today. If you've been tracking with the overall themes of the book, it's typically divided into three sections. One theological writer said they divide the book of Ephesians into sit, walk, and stand. Sit, walk, and stand. It kind of sounds, you know, a little bit Yoda-like, right? Because normally people sit, stand, and then walk, but it's sit, walk, stand I do, right? Um, in, in defense of the theory, though, the sit talks about sitting at the feet of Jesus, taking in from him, developing our own identity in Christ. The walk is how to walk a Christian stand in and of our own lives, and then ultimately the stand is how to be steadfast as we deal with the challenges of life uh, the spiritual realities around us, and ultimately the world. Um, in starting this off, it's interesting to note that in the section about how to stand well, the buildup of how to stand well in this life talks all about relationships. Isn't that interesting that God posits relationships as actually a big part of our ability to stand well against the world and against sin and against spiritual evil. And to be quite frank with you, probably the majority of the stand section is about relationships. So just to point that out as an emphasis that Paul has. My first point today is that our relationships affect our walk with God. Uh, relationships affect our walk with God. People say this about Christianity. It's often better caught than taught, right? It's often better absorbed in culture around us than it is read about in a book where we're expected to go live it out. We read the truths in a book, but oftentimes we learn how to live it out from the others around us. And here Paul addresses some of the most intimate relationships in our lives and those relationships um, that have some of the biggest power disparity, right? People we need to submit to and listen to and are vulnerable to at the same time. Chapter 6, verse 1 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Honor your mother and father. This is the first commandment with a promise that it will, will go well with you and you will live long in the land. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in discipline and instruction in the Lord. So it's, it's powerful to me that when God talks about himself and his relationship to us, the words that he used carry family connotations, right? Family connotations in that when we talk about God and the Trinity, we talk about the Father and the Son. When we pray to God, it talks about praying to the Father and that that image is captured here on earth by our nuclear families. The big difference, of course, is that although God in heaven is perfect, despite what your parents tell you, they might not be. <laughs> they might not be. In fact, it's interesting to note here that there's, this is a commandment with a promise. 
right? As we're called to honor a perfect God in heaven, that has its own intrinsic benefits. But here on earth, God recognizes that, hey, honoring your father and mother, I might have to put a carrot with that stick, right? Things will go well for you in the land because those relationships aren't, usually aren't often perfect. And in fact, Paul, the, the phrase, the verse here goes even so far as to buffet, to protect those who are children by saying, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. anger. Bring them up in discipline and instruction in the Lord. It's also interesting to note that Paul brings in language from the Old Testament, which makes us think about you know, what, how do we react to the Old Testament as New Testament Christians, right? I know Christians who've told me, I don't read the Old Testament because we're under the New Covenant. The New Covenant did away with all of the Old, so all I need to read is the New Testament. But we see here that Paul is importing Old Testament language verse for verse and not discarding it, but actually building upon it in his theological framework. It's also important to notice sometimes we import, as God has made our nuclear family a picture of how we're to relate to him, sometimes we can import baggage from our nuclear family into our spiritual family. Any high school guidance counselor will tell you when they're dealing with a kid who has trouble with authority, you're supposed to ask questions about the family, right? If they have a bad authority figure at home, they're going to carry out their anger at that authority figure out at school or with other authority figures. Christian counselors have said similar things about how our families are and how they affect us in our relationship with God. If dad seemed distant and far away, we might think of God the Father that way. Because that's you import that same language. Hey, this is the Father. My father was not close to me. And God isn't physically present in fleshly terms right here, except through us. Like you know, so I, I just have this emotional sense of who God the Father is. It's real good for us to know, just to be aware, to check maybe some of the things that we import into that felt aspect of God the Father and the emotions we carry with that word and the baggage it may contain for us. It was Charles Spurgeon who kind of took a scripture verse and, and tweaked it into a phrase a little bit. He said, train up your child in the way he should go but be sure to go that way yourself. (laughs) That paints an active picture of what I believe God is saying to parents here and putting a buffer on their power and, and asking them to live godly lives towards their children. The verse goes on and says, bond servants, it's interesting, in Amanda's version it says slaves, we'll get to that in a second, bond servants, obey your masters, with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would obey Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, that he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or he is free. And masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven 
and there's no partiality with him. You know, this verse strikes me when, when people talk about the archaicness of the Bible and how things 2,000 years ago really don't have any bearing on today. And I would say, you know, maybe they're right. Maybe slavery has no bearing on today. We'll skip those verses. No, I'm just kidding. It's, it's interesting, even in our culture, that 2,000 years later, we're still talking about slavery, right? I mean, that's still a thing. The, the topic is still a thing, and it still carries baggage with it. It's interesting to note as well that, in, so in my Bible, that word for slave is bondservant, and in other versions, it's slave, okay? Now, let me just point out some differences um, in what the Bible means when it talks about slave in Jewish culture versus what America means when we talk about our history of slavery, because they're two different things. People even attack the Bible by saying that the Bible promotes slavery. Now, if they mean that it promoted what was the American system of slavery, I, I, that isn't a true statement. So, in Jewish culture, slaves were often more like indentured servants. If you had a debt that you couldn't pay, you signed up to go work it off to whoever you owed the debt. Some people even believe that Luke, the physician who wrote Luke and the book of Acts, some people believe that he was a slave by how he addresses his letters. See, if you're a wealthy man back in the day and you wanted medical care for your household, well, they didn't have big hospitals and community health care systems like we do. So some of them would take a bright member of the community, offer to send them away to medical school, and in return, that person would be a bondservant to the household in exchange for education. So it's, it would be like, kind of like signing up for the military. You go, you get trained for a job, and then you owe years of your life in service as an exchange for this. In fact, if you were a Jewish slave enslaved for debt, every seven years you had the chance to leave and become free. But some slaves, some bond servants, chose to maintain their life as a bond servant because they realized the benefactor that they were working for actually gave them a better life than they were living on their own. So they chose to be a bondservant for the rest of their life. Paul uses that term affectionately when he calls himself a bondservant for Christ in certain areas of Scripture. It's also interesting to note that if you harmed a slave or caused permanent damage, specifically a couple of verses are if you knock out their eye or a tooth, they're free. You hurt, you hurt them bad, they're, they're no longer a slave to you. So there was protections in the Jewish community around slavery, and to very specifically address what America practices slavery would have been forbidden in the Bible. Exodus 21 verse 16 says, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So that the system of slavery that was in the Western world 200 years ago, where they kidnapped people, forced them into slavery, and st stole them from their freedom, that was actually punishable by a death penalty. 
So when you hear people talking about our American system of slavery and how the Bible would have supported that, that's actually not a correct statement. In fact, as you'll notice in verse 9, God puts a call on masters the same way he did with fathers. As, hey, fathers, here's how you're to behave to your kids. Masters, you're to behave this way to your servants. Stop even threatening them. We already know they couldn't harm them. Don't even threaten them. Because your master is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. Masters, put yourself in check. So with all that, I would say it's not fair for those who attack the Bible and say, hey, the Bible promotes slavery, the American system of slavery, therefore I want to discard it. That's not a historically accurate assessment. What's really interesting to me, though, is to see, just in these verses, how nuclear family and slavery were addressed side by side to one another. Let me read you a statement from the Black Lives Matter website, right, which is a current state of affairs where we're trying to deal with racial inequality and issues stemming from the slavery practiced in this nation 200 years ago. Now, Black Lives Matter, their initial message is that they want parity in culture for African Americans. If I could sum that up the way I understand it, is that they want to be rid of systemic racism. I support that. They want to be rid of police brutality. I support that. It's interesting to watch this connection, though, between slavery and the nuclear family. Here's what else they say from their website. We desire to disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family requirement. We're here to disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement. We're a fo- we foster a queer affirming network when we gather. We do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking, or rather, the belief that all the world are hetero- heterosexual unless she, he, or they disclose otherwise. So they want to break down heterosexuality as the norm. It's interesting because you read the Bible, you're like nuclear family slavery. How do those go together? Kind of ironic, even today, we're, we're positing those together. And to be just totally historically accurate, if you want to call the nuclear family as a Western prescribed structure requirement, well, we're reading an Eastern document. This particular part of Scripture is about 2,000 years old, and that seems to me like an Eastern prescribed family requirement. Um, all of this... All of this to say, I would have to say, it's coming, if not already here, will be the day when our Christian empathy is going to be posited against our sense of truth, right? I mean, Paul starts off many of his letters by saying, grace and truth be with you. It's been said that grace without truth is hypocrisy, but truth without grace is brutality, as Christians, we're called to have both. But it's, it's interesting to watch, like with Black Lives Matter, while I support what seem to be the tip of the spear issues that Black Lives Matter would put forth, 
there's also in there pieces of truth that I wouldn't affirm. Positing my sense of truth, like, hey, there's part of this that I, that I can't confirm as true, against my sense of empathy, like, hey, there's a social movement, and God has called Christians to be socially active. Throughout the Old Testament, the practice of gleaning and giving to those who didn't have. In the New Testament, the first deacon board was divided up to help take care of, was created to help take care of widows and divide up their needs. Throughout Scripture, we see a sense of calling on Christian lives to be active in helping others and be empathetic and be Jesus' helping hands to the world. But like some kind of thriller movie, you know, we're now watching this, these sense of empathy and truth played out against each other, right? Like an episode of Batman, you know, the movie Batman, like, do you blow up the boat or the bridge? You've got to decide. Do you, do you rescue your loved one or the whole city, right? We see this stuff in movies. We see it in politics, too. You try to put through a bill on, for example, like creating better freeways. But to get certain states on board, you have to give them, you know, what they call pork in the political system. You have to give Montana, you know, range space, create a national park in Florida. You have to help New York with their healthcare system. Pretty much the bill isn't about, pretty soon the bill isn't about making better freeways. There's more money in stuff other than freeways, but to get the freeway part through, you need to sign on with all these other things. I think the day is coming in our lives where our empathy is going to be treated like that. Like people are going to want to pull us on board for certain causes, and we're going to have to balance out the places where God calls us and instructs us to be hands of change in the community, to be empathetic and loving and push for appropriate social change, but at the same time to have that sense of truth in our life. There's an interesting scripture that talks about having the trowel in one hand and the sword in the other. How do we do that with grace and truth today? The answer is, I believe, like Jesus put it, to be sly as serpents and innocent as doves, to think well, to look for truth, to be loving and pure and innocent. See, we know about emphasis that they were a very truth-filled church. In fact, we see in the book of Revelation, Jesus addresses the church of Ephesus. It says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, where, from where you have fallen and repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. See, this church was diligent with the truth. But like as Paul talks about in Corinthians, if you have the truth but are without love, you're a sounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And I think maybe one of the challenges that we have in this 21st century is to balance out being people who call for truth and call for righteousness with the fact that we're also called to be empathetic and socially active. He goes on in verse 10, 
Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not fight against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What Paul is talking about here, and let me first explain a Hebraism, which is like a Hebrew slang, that word for flesh and blood means us, means men or human beings. Um, my, my next point is that evil, as Paul's describing here, transcends the, natu- the natural world. It transcends the natural world. So when Paul's saying we do not fight against flesh and blood, not just human beings, but we fight against spiritual powers. Okay? Ephesus was a place that, that was very familiar even before Paul got there with a spiritual life. I'm going to read out of Acts 19. It talks about Paul's initial trip to Ephesus. It says, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out. Check this, next verse, 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists Okay, you got that right. Itinerant Jewish exorcists came out and undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. Jewish exorcists invoking Jesus, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom, the Paul, whom Paul proclaims. Now, there were seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva who were doing this. Okay, take a break right here. Have you guys ever seen the TV show Dangerous Jobs? Okay, right? They have like the underwater welders. They have the firemen who deal with like flammable liquids. They have like smoke jumpers. I'm thinking itinerant Jewish exorcist invoking Jesus without being saved. Like that would make some great television, right? It goes on to say the evil spirits answered them. Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? (laughs) The man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. (laughs) Don't try this at home. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus. you got to imagine that one on Facebook quick, right? (laughs) Both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, for the name of Jesus was extolled. Many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them. So Ephesus was a place where people were practicing magic arts, casting spells, doing, you know, 2,000 years ago forms of witchcraft, It said the value of all of these books was 50,000 pieces of silver. 50,000. All you Bible scholars out there, do you remember how much Judas sold out Jesus for? 30. 30 was like, woohoo, bounty. 50,000 pieces of silver. This was a place that invested heavily in the spiritual. They were aware of a spiritual reality even though they chose a darkened one. This wasn't a naturalistic society. 
our world today is kind of leaning the other way in the West as we've leaned into things like scientific method, which have done great things for experimentation and medicine and exploration into space and a lot of the sciences, we've become a very naturalistic society. Andrew Delbanco, a Columbia University professor, wrote a book about this called The Death of Satan. It's interesting, my understanding of Andrew Delbanco is he's like an atheist or agnostic. I, I do not believe he's a follower of Jesus. But one of his first lines, and this was in light of trying to explain things like the Columbine massacre and some of these school shootings, he said, a gulf has opened in our culture between the visibility of evil and our intellectual resources to cope with it. Think about what he's saying. He's saying, we don't understand why high school kids, especially now with in-school counseling sessions and community development programs and more active social programs now than we would have had 50 or 100 years ago, yet it seems our problems are getting that much deeper and more sinister right? If education was the answer to our problems, why did Nazi Germany extinguish so many lives? I mean, if, if you had the intellectual resources, the creativity and capacity to have a whole lot of power or wealth or control, why wouldn't you just buy an island in the Bahamas and like drink out of a coconut? Why, why are you messing with people? You know what I mean? Like, why bother? If you're that creative and gifted, why? I do it. And what he's pointing out is that, naturally speaking, there doesn't seem to be a good explanation for these things. But the thing about our culture now is I think some of the naturalistic thinking is starting to creep into the church. Here's what I mean by that. One pastor said this about our challenge with evil. He said, the church will often say we're battling against the liberals, the Democrats, the godless politicians, we blame the LGBT gay agenda. The fact of the matter is we keep lashing out and spinning our wheels on just the symptoms. We miss the root cause. We have a nation, a people, a culture who has started looking away from God for answers. They deny, many of them, the existence of God. Simply put, in today's culture, we cannot tolerate the notion of God because that would mean we would have to answer to a power greater than ourselves, and that cannot be tolerated. Right? If we believe that everything that has, has a natural cause, we can say we have to look to the natural world for solutions, and we don't have to consider there's rules more powerful than us. Anything that we can control or look at or point at or blame and we can try to fix means we don't need to lean into a higher power for answers and we don't need to submit ourselves to that power. I read this story about a mental hospital. I tried to track as to whether or not this was like an old wives' tale or whether it was actually true. I, I can't say that I was able to, to do that, but it's an interesting story. See, the story is that this mental hospital, in order to let people out, devised a test to see if, if 
people were what they used to call mentally continent, right? Like, can you hold thoughts in your mind? What they would do is they would go into the bathroom, plug up the bathroom sink, turn on the faucet. They'd let the sink fill up, and the water start to spill out on the ground. Then they would take the patient who they were about to release, hand him a mop, and tell him, go into the bathroom and clean up the water. What do you have to do to clean up the water? You have to turn off the water. Some of these patients, not being mentally cognizant, would go in there and mop, and there'd be more water. And they'd mop, and there'd be more water. And they'd mop, and they'd mop, and they'd mop, and they'd mop, and this sounds kind of mean, but they wouldn't get out of the hospital if that's all they did. <laughs> right? They, they couldn't look to the source of the water and understand where it was coming from. They couldn't understand the source of their problems. The point that that pastor that I quoted was trying to make is that as we start to look to natural sources as the cause of our problems, and we're unable to recognize the spiritual source of some of those problems, we become ineffective. We don't know how to fight them. In 2 Corinthians 2.11, it says, Lest Satan should get an advantage over us, we are not ignorant of his devices. So that Satan wouldn't have an upward hand, we have to look at how he works. See, the battle against spiritual forces is a battle against battalions of fallen angels, evil spirits with tremendous power. There's a quote. Though we cannot see them, we're constantly surrounded by spiritual realities and spiritual beings. To import some of that thinking today, there's an interesting sense of truth to our cancel culture, isn't there? Right? For those of you who aren't familiar with the term of cancel culture, cancel culture is this movement that's going on in the United States and around the globe where they find monuments created to people who they deem to have egregious sin in their life, and they tear down those said monuments. Um, maybe the intellectual problem with doing that on a global scale is that tearing down statues of yesteryear posits our culture as the only one who's getting it right. I, I don't think we can make that argument. But I think there is sort of truth to, to, some as, to one aspect, one spiritual aspect of cancel culture. Think about, think about cancel culture. Cancel culture is saying that no matter how accomplished you are, no matter what good you did, no matter how much good, how much you gave, if you had a successful career, if you were a nice guy, no matter what, if you had a stain of a certain egregious sin on your life, everything you built will be torn down. See, I think there's an ultimate cancel culture that one day we'll leave only one monument standing. To read a verse out of Romans chapter 20, verse 11, sorry, Revelation 20, 11, it says, I saw a great white throne and him seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled. 
and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and this is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into that lake of fire. See, one day there will be only one monument that stands. It'll be a living monument. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. And it doesn't matter what what wars you won, what charitable contributions you made, if you were a nice guy, if you have a stain on your life, you will have the ultimate cancel culture. See, the only way to be clean from the stain of sin in our lives is to ask and offer repentance to Jesus. To say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Please save me. Wash me of this sin. Let me repent, Lord. Because any monument that's not built on the rock will not stand. My next point is that we're going to need to surrender to win that day. We're going to need to surrender to win on that day. In verse 13, it says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes of your feet, put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Make sure you have your mask to avoid corona. No, sorry. In, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Kind of a funny story. I heard a, a high school pastor preach this to his youth group who was a bunch of wild kids. And he's like, all right, you know, a lot of you guys are saved. You got your helmet of salvation. But I'm looking around for the readiness of the gospel, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith. And I can say this, you guys, all you got is the helmet of salvation. You're spiritual streakers right now, right? Like that's all you got is the salvation. You're missing all the rest of it. Exegetically, I can't quite come to the same conclusion, but I thought it was an interesting thing to think about. How many of us try to walk around with just our sense of faith? Just our sense of salvation while ignoring our faith and the readiness for the gospel and these other things. The verb here for take up is different than the previous verbs that have been sometimes translated for take up in this same passage. This one speaks of to raise up and is more of an active and empowered process. Things that we are actively going to engage in building our own sense of understanding the truth, building our own sense of righteousness, not out of our own creation, but effort through leaning into Jesus for these things. Summed up in verse 18, I think by the effort of praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keeping alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me 
in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Mother Teresa said this about prayer as we've gone from sort of an active passage of putting on things to what we mean by how do you put those things on through prayer. She said, prayer is not asking. Love Mother Teresa, straight to the point. Prayer is not about asking. Prayer is about putting yourself in the hands of God at his disposition and listening to his voice in the depths of our heart. Our ultimate surrender is to Jesus and his purposes, and it's not shocking that that our pathway to spiritual strength is paved in prayer. 2 Chronicles 16.9 tells us that for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those who are blameless towards him. You've done foolishly in this, for now you will have wars. See, the Lord is looking for those who are strong on account of him. And what it's saying in this Old Testament passage to the Jews in Israel was that, hey, if if you're strong in God, God's going to fight your national battles for you. That's not a direct promise that can be imported into the United States. We're not a theocracy run by God, but I, I think there's a theme we could import. That as we live in God and He is our salvation and our strength, that He stands up for us as well. Isn't it funny that while we read Paul's prayer... You know, that he's an ambassador in chains and that that makes him more bold. I can admit that as a, you know, as a Western Christian and as a pastor, I have way more often prayed for blessings than I have prayed for chains. Right, can anybody relate? Yeah, yeah, Can I get amen? Whoop, whoop. Like, we, we are not hardwired to think about our lack of freedom, our disempowerment, and our pain as empowering our boldness. But note this about Paul's life. Paul traveled much of that ancient Near East world preaching and creating churches. But he was probably exponentially more effective in writing letters. Right? I don't know any of his full sermons that he preached 2,000 years ago. But guess what? I've read a bunch of his writing. He was more effective in prison than he was walking around. Yet I can tell you from my own life, it's so much easier to pray for comfort and convenience than it is for inconvenience that leads to empowerment. But be careful with that. Ray Comfort said this about our church in America. Few would deny that our church as a whole has fallen short of the powerful, disciplined, sanctified church that was seen in the book of Acts. Instead of preaching the good news that sinners can be made righteous in Christ and escape from the wrath to come, we've settled for a gospel that implies a wonderful plan for our lives that solves our problem, that makes us happy, and that rescues us from hassles. 
Yet here's Paul in a scenario as a chained Christian, right? Likely more brutal of a scenario than anyone in this room has experienced. And he's saying that those chains help him declare boldly that that's a sense of empowerment. He goes on from there to give what he calls his final greetings. So that you may know how I am and what, am I, what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister of the Lord, will tell you everything. Check that out. Paul, in his letter, like when I greet people, it's like, hey, how you doing? What's up? How's your world? You know, where you been? What's, how's work? Paul is like, no, 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 skip all that. Tychicus will tell you about that, all right? Like, we need to talk about Jesus. Like, there's spiritual things going on. We need to focus. We need to put that center. My buddy will fill you in later. Like, we got, we got business to take care of. Love that about Paul. No wonder he's been used throughout the world on behalf of God's purposes. I've sent him to you for this purpose, that you may know how, he, how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers with love and faith from God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, and grace be with all you who love our Lord with love incorruptible. What I really appreciate about this epistle and even this ending of the epistle is that all, after all the heavy-duty doctrine, I mean, Ephesians may be second place to Romans in terms of like heavy-duty doctrine in the New Testament, Paul lines this gospel with grace be to you in love incorruptible. Like to understand that grace, that grace and truth conflict, which is becoming, I feel, ever more present in our world, we've got to understand the depth of God's love for us. One pastor put it this way, you're far more flawed than you could ever imagine which makes God's love far more deeper than you could ever imagine. It's almost scary to think of somebody who loves you, even all the things that are messed up about you. I mean, it makes you wonder, like, what's wrong with them that they would love me and all that? My goodness. Nothing's wrong with God. He's perfect. He's going to redeem you. He's going to touch your life. He's going to change you forever not to a wonderful life necessarily, but to a perfect eternity in joy and peace with grace and truth forever. On account of all this, what can we do? Well, the first thing to do is pray, right? I mean, our country right now has a significant amount of civil, spiritual, and domestic unrest. Rates of domestic violence as people are stuck inside with coronavirus are high. On the civil side, you've been watching the news around in Los Angeles. There's broken buildings and things burned and people getting shot in autonomous zones within our country's borders. There's significant unrest. Maybe some of those domestic things you've experienced in your home and be praying for, can be praying for those and affecting those. But a lot of these things may seem outside of our natural ability to influence. But the good news is God gives us supernatural ability to influence through prayer. If you're looking for a way to pray or some support with praying, 
We have a prayer meeting on Thursday night. Short, just 20 or 30 minutes, but it's a way for our community to gather together to offer fellowship to one another and to lift up what God's doing in our church, in our nation, and ask for his intercession in our lives. Another thing you can do is you can share the gospel. As the news seems perpetuated with chaos and that sense of unrest and what does the future hold, people are looking for a sense of security and truth in the world. And there is nothing more secure that you can offer them than God's promises, specifically the promise of redemption in the gospel. The last thing you can do is put on the armor of God. There's a whole section in there. We didn't get time to dig really deeply into what those things are. But I challenge you, read through them this week. I mean, if you're like me and you're more of a truth person, maybe figuring out areas in your life where you can balance out a sense of love and grace would be important. Maybe if you're sort of the the sanguine, loving person in your household, maybe there's times you could speak a little bit more truth. We all have something that we can learn from this passage about how to be equipped for his service. So in conclusion, God has a great plan for us. I mean, his word today started out with things that 2,000 years ago seemed very close to home, and gosh, when you pick up the newspaper 2,000 years later, it's like, wow, these, these things are still true. So are God's words and God's promises. And that, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace. You've done much in our life. You have great plans for our future, not in the sense of a wonderful life of a bunch of materialistic things, Lord, but in the sense of understanding our humanity, your divinity, having a pure, perfect relationship with you, our Father in heaven, and ultimately going to be with you in living glory for the rest of eternity. Heavenly Father, we ask you to sustain us for that day, to prepare us ultimately for that life to come. And Lord, we ask you to be with us on the road in between. In your precious name, Jesus, amen.